This FT podcast is supported by Vitality. Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Darren Dodd, editor of FT Health and Work magazine, and this is News and Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Underslept employees, firstly, will select less challenging problems. Secondly, of the problems they do select, they produce fewer creative solutions. Third, we know that when underslept employees are working in teams, they slack off. Fourth, what we've discovered worryingly is that the less and less sleep that an employee has, the more likely they are to lie and become deviant and engage in unethical behavior. And then the final thing, which is work done by Christopher Barnes here in America, he found that the more or less sleep that a business leader has had from one night to the next, the more or less charismatic their employees will rate that business leader from one day to the next. That clip you just heard was Matthew Walker, author of Why We Sleep, and a guest on a previous FT News in Focus podcast. What Matthew Walker has referred to as an epidemic of silent sleep loss is making its mark on the workplace. But what are its causes and what should businesses do to ensure their employees get a good night's kip? Here with me to discuss are sleep expert James Wilson, who works with organisations and sports teams, and Louise Aston, wellbeing director at Business in the Community. So firstly, Louise, addressing the problem of poor sleep has been rising up the public health agenda for the last few years. How serious a problem is it for employers? It's a huge problem. At Business in the Community, we're very much looking at health and wellbeing through a responsible business lens. And the way that we tackle sleep is actually in a much more holistic, integrated way. So we would never look at sleep as a standalone topic. It's very much that whole person whole organisation approach. And actually, we've done a lot of work with Public Health England in terms of co-creating a suite of interconnected toolkits for employers, of which sleep and recovery is one. But when we went to Public Health England, our leaders felt really strongly that sleep was a hugely neglected topic. I mean, sleep is essential to life in the same way as food and eating is, but hardly anything's been done And although there was barely any evidence that Public Health England could find, they felt that it was an important enough topic to at least produce a toolkit for all employers that could fuel that debate. Now, James, your business is advising companies on how to promote better sleep for their workers. How did you become a sleep specialist? So I am third generation mattress manufacturer. My family made beds and mattresses and I couldn't sleep. So we, we employed sleep experts and they kept telling me it was my fault. And I was doing everything that they suggested. So my sort of journey in improving sleep came in my own sleep and trying to do something about it. A lack of ability to access health professionals within the NHS and training as a kid's sleep practitioner first and doing some additional adult training. And that leading me to working with organisations, both in terms of helping their employees sleep better, but also organisations who work within the sleep industry and them developing products and services. And I'd say over the last three, four years that I've been working within organisations, sleep is rising on that agenda. In terms of wellbeing, it does seem to be the thing that employers are looking at, alongside maybe the menopause, really looking at and really trying to do something about. How much of this problem is due to the changing nature of work, the 24-7 nature, always on, late night emails? Is business to blame for a lot of this problem? I think that's a little harsh. I mean, I think that employers have a role in terms of what they can own, in terms of good job design that actually accommodates sufficient sleep and recovery. But we know through business in the community's mental health at work research 
that we did in partnership with Mercer Marsh Benefits, that over half of the issues in terms of at least mental health issues are caused by things from outside of work. And I'm sure the same is true for sleep. If you're a new parent or you've got some kind of physical health problem or you're worried about financial debt, there's a whole host of things that can keep you awake at night that isn't necessarily work-related. And I think it's worth remembering that a poor sleeper is genetically a poor sleeper. So actually, the way we sleep is very different. It's often dictated by genes. You know, our sleep type comes from our ancestors. So a workplace can do everything it can. I've worked with organisations who, for example, have put in place flexible working so people could come in any time between 7 and 10. They're based in London, so everyone comes in at 7 to miss the rush hour, no matter what their sleep type is. So sometimes an organisation can do everything they can to try and help the employees get better sleep, but there could be unintended consequences of that action, and it can actually still be impacted and giving some people poor sleep. Both of you make the point about the importance of lessons coming from the top in organisations. Yeah, I mean, to do with good health and well-being, it absolutely starts with leadership in terms of setting the tone, leading by example, and in terms of a CEO who actually takes all their holiday entitlement, isn't actually sending emails at five in the morning. All of that is really important. Yeah, I definitely agree. The worst organisation I worked with was a school where the head teacher believed if you weren't sleeping properly, it's because you weren't working hard enough. With that kind of attitude, the employees and the students in that school didn't have much chance. So it definitely comes to the top. When I work in sports, we see this sports teams where the management buy into sleep has been important to their performance and recovery of their athletes. They do better and they engage better with this. When it's more like a marketing exercise, it's a bit of sleep washing. We'll get someone in to just talk about sleep and that's it. You don't have that long-term effect of good sleep. But I would like to add to that the importance of actually co-producing any kind of sleep and recovery strategy with your employees. It can't be a top-down. There's actually got to be some kind of dialogue and consultation as well, and particularly with shift patterns. Am I right thinking that incremental change is more effective than large-scale change? I think when it comes to behaviour change, we find with sleep, if it's small behaviour changes, that is easier to implement because... It's easy for, say, maybe, for example, academics to prescribe an approach that is very like you need to change your whole life around. But people have families, people have hobbies. This is not about making people monks, making people not have fun. And that's not just for sleep, that's well-being in general. We need to create programmes that actually fit into people's real lives. But if you've got a really good integrated strategic health and well-being strategy, that in itself will actually enhance good sleep and recovery. So everything kind of fits together. So as I said at the beginning, it's not taking this as a standalone topic. Let's look particularly at the problems faced by night shift workers. So either people who permanently work on night shifts or those who occasionally do night shifts. This this number seems to be growing. This seems to be a real problem. It does. And I think every organisation is different with shift work. So it depends on the shift pattern. Actually, I think organisations that are bringing shift workers in the quite new, like tech-based companies, they're understanding this. And there may be people doing night shifts for a month or two at any one time or permanent nights. That's easier for the body to adjust to than a traditional continental shift pattern that might be two days, nights, two days, days, four days off. That is incredibly difficult for an individual's body to adjust to. That kind of shift pattern will be damaging to that individual. But some organisations, the NHS, for example, need to have people working at night. So how do we actually help those people do the best they can? So the use of 
Light is a great one, you know, making sure that there's natural light boxes available that gives people that uplifting energy level. So there are little things that we could do to help it. But I would say shift work is becoming more and more common. But I think the plus point is people are designing better shift patterns. Yeah, but we do know that working night shifts has about a 25 to 30 percent higher risk of injury. So that's a real consideration. And I think at the beginning, we heard about lack of creativity, not getting enough sleep and cognitive judgment. But there's also the health and safety risk consideration. Yeah. I mean, there's also the link with mental health, which I know is one of mm. your specialist areas, that poor sleep being both a sign and a cause of mental ill health. Yeah, and I think where we've had an amazing role model is with Antonio Orto-Osorio, who's the CEO of Lloyds Banking Group. At the time, basically, we heard in the press that he was suffering from sleep deprivation But actually underlying that sleep deprivation was the anxiety of turning around the bank. And now Antonio is openly talking about his experience. And actually Lloyd's Banking Group is a really good example of how an employer behaved really responsibly in terms of the board didn't write him off. He got his rest and recovery at the Priory. And then basically they made some adjustments to his job design. And now the share price has gone up and Lloyds are doing really well. That's all right, I guess, for uh, big companies who can afford to send employees to the Priory. But what about those people in the gig economy who are going from one employer to the next? I mean, how do you look after those people? How can you possibly regulate? I think it's very difficult to regulate. I think there does need to be a bit of a change in society, but it starts from the moment we send our kids to school. You know, for teenagers, the school day starts too early. That then impacts on the workplace because we have workplaces that need to start at a certain time because school day does, and we don't have enough, particularly behavioural practitioners within public health services. We need to... Start at the start in terms of society and making sure that every part of society is being helped when it comes to sleep. And Louise, you've had some success getting the government buy-in on your toolkit. Yes. And I think although there was patchy evidence, it's a kind of no-brainer that sleep is a fundamental, important part of your health and well-being. What I would say about BITC and Public Health England's toolkit for employers on sleep and recovery is it is evidence-based on the little evidence that's out there It is a consolidation of that best evidence with best business practice, but also a kind of staged approach wherever you are on your particular journey and a range of really good, freely available resources. So Louise, how has business responded to this initiative? I mean, what more needs to be done? I think there needs to be a profound cultural shift on how we think about sleep. At the beginning of when I was developing the Sleep and Recovery Toolkit, I spoke to a senior person at a professional services company and he said to me, oh, don't tell us just to get more sleep. And that's exactly what we're saying. And actually, it's totally irresponsible business to not get enough sleep back to their poor decision making, health and safety and even risking people's lives. But I think what businesses need to be doing is helping that individual employee understand themselves as a sleeper. I think the true route of getting better at sleep and sleeping not something you can cure is about getting better at it is to actually understand yourself as an individual. Are you a lark, an owl, or somewhere in the middle? How much sleep do you need? And sleep need is not just about time, it's also about quality. So we measure sleep often in volume, but actually quality is just as important. And taking those sorts of things and applying them to your life. Now, if you've got kids, sleep is more difficult. If you have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and you are a night owl, that can be very difficult. But actually, if you're a night owl and your working day doesn't start till 10, but you're waking up at five o'clock to go to the gym, that's a bad decision as well. So I think it's actually helping people understand themselves and making those small changes that will have a big impact. It's trying to take away this idea of a prescriptive amount of time that everyone needs and help that person work out who they are 
when it comes to sleep. And I'm deeply inspired by Ariana Huffington. Yeah, it's actually sleeping your way to the top. Yeah, so she (laughs) talks about quite literally sleeping your way to the top because actually sleep is so fundamental in terms of how you feel physically, mentally, emotionally, etc. So on her podcast, she's literally surrounded by cushions embroidered with Sleep Your Way to the Top. Thank you very much, Louise and James, and thanks for listening. This episode and FT Health at Work magazine is supported by Vitality. You can find much more at ft.com slash work hyphen health. If you want to know more about the Business in the Community Sleep and Recovery Toolkit, follow the link in the show notes. And if you've missed any of our previous episodes, you can subscribe to News in Focus on all the usual podcast platforms.